You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. I call upon my ancestors to judge me and my clan. Welcome to another episode of Modern Myth. And uh, this Modern Myth is perhaps not one you were expecting, especially from a show on the Archaeology Podcast Network. But don't fear. I am here to dig into the deepest fears of everyone. And one of my personal favourite topics for examination is this fear. A more modern fear. But... With modern fears come modern myths. We try and explain things. We try and make sense of the world. So it's time to look at how we make sense of that world. So first, a little riddle. You can hear it only with the aid of a machine. You can't taste it nor see it. It's all around us and it strikes fear into our hearts. Only a small dose can render us dead. And while this is wielded by medical professionals in certain situations, ultimately its name strikes fear into our hearts. December 2nd, 1942, Chicago. Pile number one, lit up, ready for action. It had achieved criticality the necessary state for a reaction to occur. Scientist Enrico Fermi and Leo Schillard were the proud creators of this reactor. What they managed to create was something magical, the world's first nuclear reactor. Fermi himself described the reactor in quite frank terms as a crude pile of black bricks and wooden timbers. However, the heat from this pile was not combustion. The warnings about radiation do certainly have a truth to them. My favourite story, and possibly one of the most terrifying sounding, is that of the demon core. 6.2 kilograms, measuring 3.5 inches in diameter, and made of plutonium. It may not sound like much, 
but as with all aspects of nuclear technology, immense energy comes in small sizes. The Demon Core, as it became known after its fatalities, was deadly on two occasions. Harry Daglin was the first victim. He suffered acute radiation syndrome after exposure to the core. A security guard, Robert Hemmerley, was also affected. However, he lived for 33 years after the incident, dying of leukemia at the age of 62. Now, because of the topics, I just wanted to warn you that uh, Marty and myself both get a little bit explicit in our language, but I hope that doesn't detract from the content. Welcome, you're listening to Modern Myth with me, Tristan, the Anarchaeologist, and today I'm talking to Marty, who's the nuclear anthro on Twitter. We've just been talking about what happens when you stand underneath a nuclear bomb. Now, Marty is quite fond of the technical details. So, Marty, this is where I'm kind of going to let you reign a little free. Um, can you tell us about some of the different types of bombs that we've actually blown up? You know, whether testing or otherwise. What what, what gives it a good example of what is in a... What, what's the general blueprint first? And then let's get some examples. Like, what makes an atomic bomb an atomic bomb? Um, so my relationship to the technical details, like my relationship to all elements of this, is complicated and fraught and laden with many thoughts and feelings. Uh, so fond is, is perhaps um, a simplistic way of, of putting it, but it is, it is one of the areas that um, I have investigated somewhat. So a nuclear weapon is... Uh, in answer to your first question, what type of bombs has what types of bombs has the U.S. set off? Uh, most types, you know, pretty much like if they could think of it, they uh, they set off a lot of different types. Uh, in terms of what types actually like entered the stockpile and were deployed by the United States, those follow a pretty clearly established. Um, design pedigree, I would argue. So Hugh Gusterson has this great quote from one of his um, interlocutors who says like, everything in nuclear weapons design was really solved by the late 50s and the rest of it was just quote, polishing a turd. Which is <laughs> not totally true, but a lot of the big chunks were done. <clears throat> uh, so a brief history of like nuclear weapons development and the technical aspects would be something like, during the Manhattan Project, the United States develops two so you have two problems with a nuclear weapon. One, the fissile material, plutonium or highly enriched uranium in this case. And two, how to bring that material together fast enough that you get a militarily worthwhile explosion before that material melts and disassembles itself without producing an explosion. Because you know, it's fissile and bringing it close together makes it hot. Uh, so, with uranium, highly enriched uranium, because it has a very low spontaneous neutron rate, you can just use like gunpowder and shoot chunks of it toward each other. There were there were rings, um, and it will produce a you know 15 kiloton-ish um, detonation over um, Hiroshima. Uh, the Nagasaki um, bomb, Fat Man, was a plutonium implosion device where you surrounded a sphere of plutonium 239 
there was an initiator, a polonium beryllium initiator in the center, and you surrounded it all with a um, sphere of high explosives, and then you detonated it very carefully so that everything came together at one point, and you crushed the sphere of plutonium and the initiator, and you got about 20 kilotons out of that. I just want to focus in on the kind of word initiator. I mean, is am I am I correct in just saying that we squish these things together and then they blow up? I mean, in a very, yeah. very basic way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's actually kind of like magic, because if you put these two rocks, um, well, metals after we're done with them, uh, but basically, right, if you put these two metals next to each other, close enough together, they'll destroy an entire city. Yeah, it's weird. It is. I, I, and, I mean, like, um, it, there's nothing special we have to do, because, I mean, if we think about it, uh, when it came to splitting the atom, that was done in laboratories where, um, you know, there were carefully, you know, focused neutron beams. There were, you know, we don't have any of these really complicated, like, forms of uh, particles. Um, we, we just really do kind of, like detonate two bits of radioactive materials onto each other and boom we get uh, a lot of uh, a lot out of it um so plutonium versus uranium i mean obviously people know uranium because it's using nuclear energy uh, what's different between bombs that use plutonium and bombs that might use other materials it depends on the other material in some circumstances Okay, so like, uh, like, I mean, is is uranium used for bombs? Yes, uh, you can make all uranium thermonuclear weapons if you like. Um, yes, you can basically plutonium. Like, the energies are a little bit different, and you can make it. it plutonium's material properties lend themselves in some ways to smaller primaries, which is useful when you're trying to stuff multiple weapons on a missile for instance why would you want to put multiple weapons on one missile surely one you've already paid for the missile oh okay um, but also to get past ballistic missile defenses um to uh change the um so-called exchange ratio so if you're doing a first strike uh against uh, an adversary's um hardened targets, silo-based missiles, you usually have to use two warheads for one kill. So if you're doing like a first strike damage limitation attempt, you have to use, like I said, two warheads, one kill. So if you can fit 10 warheads on one missile, that's up to five potential different targets that you can assign one warhead or two warheads to each. Okay. You, you've got, there are quite a lot of um, specific terms when we talk about nuclear weapons, you've mentioned a few of them. So first strike, I guess, is it's a preemptive strike, isn't it? Or is there something special about a first strike with regards to nuclear weapons? It depends on how you define it. In general, though, when people, my experience in watching how people actually use the term, uh, although first strike can theoretically, depending on how you want to argue it, incorporate like preemptive and preventative, uh, general, mm -hmm. I, I, so another way of saying it would be like splendid first strike. So in nuclear weapons strategy BS, a splendid first strike is one where uh, uh, an attack against an adversary, which may be preemptive and may be 
uh, may not be preemptive, may be preventative, or may just be like, hey, let's just do this today, uh, achieves a significant disarming effect and damage limitation effect or reduces retaliation to acceptable levels. Whatever, however you're defining acceptable. But I mean, this is, that's just uh, basically, that's just... Basically, whitewashing the uh, (laughs) you're whitewashing the problem, aren't you? You know, in it's basically you have to be the aggressor, don't you? In this situation, I mean, this is the kind of weird situation that uh, war you find yourself in uh, with such destructive weapons. You almost have to be the aggressor, otherwise you'll be reduced to nuclear dust or so so the thinking is but that in itself is part of the problem so certainly from carol Cohn, by the way carol Cohn's article sex and death in the rational world of civilian defense intellectuals it's free on the internets um chapter um emasculating america's linguistic deterrent etc Mm-hmm. But there's a decent body of literature discussing nuclear discourse and nuclear linguistic and um, semiotic practices that talks about like how the ways in which we talk about it and what topics are allowed to be talked about shape what we consider doable with these weapons and shape like how policy and such actually get made. So like even though, you know, Kennedy basically said um, during the 60s, like, all right, we've reached a point where we can no longer do damage limitation. We can no longer reduce the um, retaliation by the Soviet Union against us and our allies to a level that's acceptable, that it would ever make sense for us to use nuclear weapons like large scale against them first, right? So damage limitation has largely been a pipe dream since the 60s. So what does uh, damage limitation in this regard actually mean? What is damage limitation mean here in this country reducing reducing your adversary's ability to respond um you know reducing your your casualties and destruction to what you consider acceptable or quote-unquote favorable terms is that by bombing them or how does it work yeah yeah right so uh, the united states has always done um, with nuclear weapons our nuclear targeting since the first uh single integrated operations plan in um psyop 62 psyop 63 has, has been doing this since the beginning we always planned on attacking adversaries um, nuclear weapons delivery capabilities first if we were going first or if we had the weapons and then after that, um, you know, you would attack other stuff. So usually silos, uh, airfields, nuclear weapons, storage points, delivery units, etc. Okay. So yeah, basically, I mean, no, take the logic. Well, the logic of nuclear war incentivizes nuking the other person first, even though there's no. Like, this is you know, are we talking relative or absolute gains here? Even though you went first and 10 million fewer people died in the first year, they're probably still going to die, or at least 5 million of them probably still going to die out five years, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, 
you are still probably like unable to maintain your form of government, your previous way of life, etc., etc. So, like, this is the question that arises in civil defense. Also, what is the point of your civil defense? Is it sheer survival of a populace who are probably going to die of starvation shortly thereafter, or other effects? Um, is it an effort to assure the survival of the state, which is virtually impossible? Uh, it's also very difficult to ensure the survival of the populace. Um, or is it to, you know, ensure the survival of um, your, your quote-unquote way of life, which may or may not include the state? And it's like, that's also very difficult because any large landmass like the United States or the Soviet Union that went through a nuclear war, like petroleum is not going to be around. People's travel will be drastically slowed, etc., etc. It's probably a lot of centrifugal forces after that. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, which goes back to your fundamental question about Bert the Turtle. So they found when they were looking at casualties um, from casualties and like just doing testing, right? So uh, a lot of people killed, like if you're out in the open, there's a problem called tumble, where the blast wave will tumble you and then your head will strike the ground and you'll die or a wall or whatever. Uh, your other second big threat after, of course, the thermal pulse and, you know, we're talking blast wave. Um, your second big threat are, is the toilet seat going 200 miles per hour. So if you are laying on the ground with your ass to the blast, you know, head covered, etc., like it greatly reduces your risk of death or injury from missiles if you are in a certain distance from the bomb, depending on its yield, etc. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's actually not terrible advice for some people. But in in kind of the thing about nuclear war is when it comes to it, there isn't a lot you can do when the bombs fall. I mean, this is very much a situation where, well, I mean, obviously there are the horrors of conventional weapons. You know, there's nothing, there's nothing plain and simple and nice about conventional weapons but it seems like nuclear weapons seem so much more horrifying um what what makes nuclear weapons seem more terrifying do you think cultural processes so what, what <laughs> kind of what kind of what, what kind of cultural processes then yeah, you can certainly make the argument, and people have that nuclear weapon, just like we did with chemical weapons. And Price has this wonderful um, book. Uh, let me look at my bookshelf. I can't see it from here, but it's like uh, the construction of the chemical weapon taboo, or the creation of the chemical weapon taboo, or the chemical weapon taboo. Um, but just as with chemical weapons, people argued that nuclear weapons could be considered in many ways more humane because they would shorten warfare, um, that you know you would die quicker, that or that they were no worse in any way than um, being killed by a bullet or a conventional high explosive. And like, yeah, war fucking sucks. That's true. That's a very difficult thing to argue with. And I certainly, you know, as an anthropologist, I certainly recognize that, like, the articulation of whatever technological differences, technical differences in nuclear weapons to a value system of horror and moral um, opprobrium is cultural mediation of the, the phenomena. Um, I mean, you know, the technical differences are mostly uh, radiation, both prompt and um, 
and uh, also thermal pulse. And then as I mentioned earlier, because, but only in the case where the yield is significantly larger, um, you can have more damage occur because the blast wave is extended. There's also an electromagnetic pulse phenomenon. So what do you think culturally was happening in America during the Cold War that kind of influenced people's kind of like feelings towards nuclear weapons? Was there ever a time where people saw them as, uh, as I, I mean, I feel like people more talk about the horror of nuclear weapons than are for them. But at the same time, there must have been some sort of pro-nuclear weapons kind of propaganda going around. How did that really manifest itself? How, how Were people ever on the side of nuclear weapons? So again, historians, uh, Boyer by the dawn's early light provides a very um, detailed, nuanced, and rigorous uh, um, examination of early U.S. attitude, public attitudes toward, quote-unquote, the bomb in the early Cold War. Um, it was mixed. You know, you had some people immediately criticizing, uh, some people, right? So nuclear weapons fit within, arguably, I would argue, many have argued, some have argued, um, a sort of doctrinal, doctrinal lineage about air power and Duhette and other arcane stuff. And I think that to an extent, they're very much um, correct because if you look at how we discuss strategic air power and then the ways in which we fit nuclear weapons into it and LeMay's development of a quote-unquote Sunday punch and the idea that you know you're going to deliver all of your nuclear force as promptly as quickly to as many targets as quickly and that this would you know quote-unquote kill a nation sort of thing um, so certainly nuclear weapons did not enter the scene like um, What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, without any sort of um, thought or other um, other institutional or cultural like pro uh, thoughts that were there that could like adapt for them, if that makes sense. So I mean, you also had like science fiction that had been um, predicting, you know, that that nuclear technology would produce doomsday weapons, essentially. Right, if not exactly in the form of nuclear weapons per se. So, you know, there there was there were lineages already present, and the nuclear weapon, for a variety of reasons, those were the ones it was articulated to, predominantly, within certain institutionalized spaces. Because again, this has always been something about which it's been quite heterogeneous. Um, public opinion and as you point out right it's a weird position because even the people who most not all most of the nuclear analysts or strategic studies folk who are like yay deterrence you know we should recapitalize and further develop our nuclear capabilities and da -da 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 -da, their whole argument is that by doing so you will prevent nuclear war so one thing I would argue that anthropo previous anthropological work has demonstrated, uh, like Hugh Gusterson's, right, is that people who work on nuclear weapons and nuclear strategists and so on are like, you know, they're normal people. They're not evil. They're not um, in any way like persistently different. 
than others, although there are certain uh, traits that may be exacerbated as a result of their socialization, um, common socialization and the security processes and so on. But So I'm just trying to, so research into nuclear weapons has obviously for the most of the time been uh, very much under wraps. <laughs> you know, in the sense that, okay, American nuclear research has, for the most part, especially the weapons stuff, um, I think I, I'm pretty sure it's uh, subject to quite a lot of yeah um, security measures. Let's let's put it like that. Um, yeah, obviously, no, within in your that. research, um, you obviously come up against a lot of kind of situations where you're trying to get information and it's beyond the pale um i know uh, just before the show we were talking mentioned you mentioned you mentioned sometimes on your twitter about foyers would you mind like yeah. talking a little bit about what happens when you start researching this kind of stuff um, so freedom FOIA refers to the freedom of information act the uk one is the freedom of information something i think i don't know states have some version of them yes freedom of information act at this point secrecy itself has become and the experience of secrecy and or as i've started calling it information management which is also different from information control and i at some point i'm going to have to um, explicate my choice of terminology in my dissertation but until that day i'm going to leave it a little vague so yeah, information um, management and practices of it and the ways in which it sets up or um, encourages particular subjectivities and forms of governments, governance, experiences of governance, etc., has, as a result of this experience of filing Freedom of Information Acts, of going to archives, of being, you know, if you read the literature, like, it's physics, and I'm not great at physics, but some people are really good at physics, um, and some things are really obvious. And so there's information and such that like is still technically classified, but that everybody knows or that everybody can deduce. Mm -hmm. And in addition, as you point out, um, you know, under the original Atomic Energy Act, like this stuff was born classified. So going mm -hmm. through um, physics Today and Scientific America, 1950-1964, as part of my research, like, it blew my mind that Physics Today was declassifying really basic nuclear information about uranium-238, you know, mm -hmm. like, stuff that, that it just, it's always in your periodic table now. You know, Simmel, of course, back in 18-whatever, 19-whatever, early 19, late 18, in any case, Simmel, um, in Sociology of Secrecy, already notes, you know, establishes a point for anthropology to consider the ways that secrecy acts socially to construct hierarchies, to construct subjectivities, and to, con to construct social relations or to influence social relations. And so in part, that's why I feel a term other than secrecy is um, useful for discussing like these sorts of bureaucracies of information management um, and the ways in which you have to articulate yourself to them and go through them and then either have some forms of information released or some forms of information not released. And then there's this whole other aspect of it where like nobody likes this. 
uh, for researchers, the Freedom of Information Act can be amazing, but it's a real pain in the ass. And most of the, how do I rephrase, how do I say this? Um, some of the folk you work with in doing this are not super dedicated to the transparency mission of their agency and of the statute. And this is reflective of the larger institutional lack of funding and training and so on. Um, so it's not like, I'm not trying to blame individuals per se. I am noting that these individuals are operating within a particular structural environment in which freedom of information is not a valued goal for these organizations and they are acting accordingly. Um, and that, you know, the demonstration of that goal, of the value of that goal is demonstrated in the funding that they received and that that affects what they're able to do in terms of uh, their actions and so on. So, yes, it's become its own <laughs> research subject. What, does it, what do you find... Uh... I mean, without naming names, what do you find the most annoying in... Uh... Not responding to my fucking email. <laughs> do people, like... No so, hesitation. So, how do you how do you fill out a uh, FOIA? Like, what, 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 is, there, is there... There's obviously a, an official form, right? Yep. So, there are certain things that I write, they, they do not make this easy. And those, those um, institutions that have portals that you can use oh my god they are just they're byzantine trash like whoever did their user interface should just be shot um it's awful literally the united states air force freedom of information act portal mm -hmm. requires your password to be between 14 and 16 characters change it every 60 days only two characters can be the same and it must include uppercase lowercase numbers and special characters wow that's um excessive. that's excessive changes. but it's the whole point but isn't the whole yes. point to make it more difficult <laughs> it, it is difficult sometimes not to include <laughs> that that said there are other agencies there are other agencies i have interacted with um that have been very pleasant in doing their Freedom of Information Act responsibilities. So basically a FOIA has to include um, a couple of elements. You know, you have to identify it as a FOIA. You have to reasonably describe your records. You have to um, deal with your fee status. Like, here's what I'm willing to pay. And also here's how you should assess me fees. And you have to tell them, you know, you can con contact me at blah, 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 blah. And then there's some other language that I include just because, you know, the, um, as I said, representative of the institutional slash governmental valuing of this goal, the training on like fee categories is years out of date, right? So in 2016, there was a court case by Judge Kavanaugh, actually, who's now on the Supreme Court, um, SAC v. DOD 2016, um, in which students as a class were basically integrated into being able to receive institutional educational institutional fee status right big deal and as i'm doing my dissertation research and as my freedom of information act requests relate to my scholarly work i of course request that fee status and like there have been many times that i've had to point interlocutors official interlocutors to like hey you're wrong like you've assigned me the wrong fee status here's why and then you know like i have a form letter for doing yeah. it yeah what what are the i mean 
what are the kind of fees that you have to pay for this kind of stuff? Because I know in the UK, I think it's uh, ten pounds is like the maximum that you can uh, put for yourself. Wow. So, like, I know the Freedom of Information Act with regards in the UK, it's typically about information about yourself that normally people ask for and that's 10 pounds i don't know how much uh, the fees are for i mean how, how much would you have to roughly pay or what's what's the range you know i have never i've never had to pay yet because i am a student and because um in one case i knew the records were digitized and you if they're digitized you have to provide them as digitized so otherwise they were asking 10 cents to to photocopy a page for like 11,000 pages. So they wanted a thousand bucks, but there have been ridiculously large fee requests of millions before that have been litigated. Um, I personally, of course, don't, you uh -huh. know, as a PhD student, don't have the financial means of to course. pay a large fee. So unless it was, unless it were something absolutely critical, I wouldn't pay more than like 50 bucks if that depending on the topic and the documents that's still quite a lot for 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 actual but the things you pay sorry. exactly yeah for stuff that my taxpayer money went to and that you know um so the fees you can charge for are you get your first two search hours free but you can charge for expert search after two hours at whatever the rate is mm -hmm. and it's a generous or a decent rate um you can and then you can be charged duplication fees of 0.10 cents it can also vary by agency i think but 0.10 cents per page and of course they can charge you for like if they provide you with cd-roms that i usually request my documents as digital format no exactly which helps sure. cut down on that your work has got a lot to do with your outreach you know like it's very much i mean how, it's how i know you is through your twitter account at nuclear anthro and uh, one of the things that you're i would say possibly your catchphrase if you were in a 1980s sitcom would be a hashtag lick the bomb um is it safe to lick a bomb? I mean, if I went into a museum, could I lick one? Great. I okay. What does it? I, you know, if it has a sign, <laughs> I usually don't. Um, so this is a this is a good question, and this is this is a subject of one of my Freedom of Information Act requests because beginning um, after. 9-11 uh, the nuclear weapons complex started getting a little concerned about what it had out there in terms of what was on loan or on display in terms of three categories one that you could access classified information design information or other information by examining you know a nuclear weapons casing uh, two that there was ITAR ITAR I don't know what it stands for it's a statute um, restricted it's a uh, not a statute um it might be a statute but it's a uh, technology restriction regime uh and also that the things out there might contain toxic or radioactive or dangerous materials so they went through some 30 something sites and removed everything that fell into one of those three categories that said i mean you know licking anything i mean where has it been who's touched it etc etc uh but i'm not especially worried about like 
picking up plateau. Um, no. So do you actually go and lick bombs? I mean, how did that all start? How, why why are you licking bombs? They're casing. I mean, they're casings. Um, they're, or casings or trainers. Usually, usually, I have not licked an actual functioning nuclear weapon because people with guns don't let people like me near them for very good reasons. So this is, I've not licked a nuclear bomb yet. Did I say yet? Rather than a... <laughs> well... <laughs> I mean, people... You left that one open. If the opportunity availed itself and I wasn't going to get shot for doing so, yes, I think that I would, I would given my past action. So wh why did you jump to that? I mean, most people... I, I don't think most people lick what they study. So why lick the bomb? What are the conditions under which you have encountered a nuclear weapon casing or facsimile? Me? No idea. I don't think I ever have. Yeah. That's the thing. I'm missing out. Okay. Okay, I'm pretty sure that the Imperial War Museum has one. At least one. Several. They should have several. I should I should make my way down to the Imperial War Museum. But, you know, I've got and a problem. The bombs. I've got a problem with... Because um, I, I don't want to really like seem like I'm enjoying... That kind of history, yes. you know what I mean? I so feel you like. Know. <laughs> so imagine if there were a different way of articulating yourself to these artifacts than just gazing at them in mute and rapt wonder. One that engages a different sensory uh, apparatus than is usually privileged um, in museum spaces. But I'm, I'm, I'm meant to just look at them, these? right? And I'm meant to worship them and just say, yes. wow, that's cool. I mean, museums are passive, right? Right? So what if you didn't do so? Lick the bomb is an attempt to shock, in part, a rearticulation of our relationship to these artifacts by engaging with them um, in a different sensory manner. And to move okay. beyond what, like, Carol Cohn is calling uh, patting the bomb. So, you know, usually, and this is something I've witnessed as a... Uh, participant in nuclear tourism and nuclear heritage practices right people will literally pat the bomb as they walk past or take pictures as they hug it or things like that um which i would argue is much more of a reinforcing or domesticating uh but certainly not critical response to that artifact as icon and index whereas licking it offers again a different and in fact i would argue a queer um a different way for me to engage with that artifact and with the subject matter and you know it's a it's a cool party fact like i know how um you know the phenolic resin on a mark six re-entry vehicle for the titan 2 icbm taste terrible fucking awful and it lingers because it it produces formaldehyde and it's a resin and like ew but you know otherwise I, I just tell people shame and genocide um which that and phenolic resin are apparently taste about the same yeah anything with phenol in it i would uh, i would definitely not touch i mean i had to do uh, synthesis with phenols and organic chemistry at uni so i i i'm, I'm yeah I'm, I'm they smell bad enough so i, I would not <laughs> i can't believe you they linger they linger on the tongue like there's not a line that you can assign to it like you know the the mx peacekeeper shroud like the bright shiny tip is kind of kind of tar like okay a, a nice sauvignon blanc something like that no the mark <laughs> 6 rv is like shame and genocide and dirty ass just stay away i find it interesting that you talk about this as being almost like a queer praxis and obviously that's heavily informed uh by your kind of like 
history. Um, so you come from Louisiana, which is a lovely part of the, which I think sounds like a lovely part you of think? the US. Uh, yes. But I mean, what was it like growing up in Louisiana and why do you think you ended up thinking about nuclear anthropology or the study of nuclear weapons and its kind of culmination in the human psyche? Louisiana was humid and the food was excellent. And it was uh, systematically dysfunctional in terms of its politics, um, hideously racist and filled with petrochemical um, industries. Uh, in terms of moving toward thinking about nuclear issues and weapons, there's not really a good like, you know, I thought I was in a false missile alert and I thought I was going to die story. Like I said, one of my early like big childhood world event memories is that the Berlin Wall was coming down. So I could only offer that. And it's been really fun and I've enjoyed this and sucks for the rest of y'all. It's been really great being the only generation of Americans since like the 40s who's been able to forestall my worry about impending nuclear war until adulthood. Like, I can't imagine having had to deal with that as a kid. So, sucks for y'all, but thanks for the time. Um, because I did get to, right? The, the Korean crisis is really the first uh, U.S. involved, like, extended, okay, we could actually get into a conventional and then presumably nuclear war about this. Mm -hmm. And certainly some of the recent information claimed that's come out with regards to Trump's comments about the nuclear football at the time would substantiate that. But you, even without that, just looking at what was going on, there was the potential for accidental um, or unintended escalation. And even if we are assuming that the United States wasn't actually, or that certain folk in the United States weren't actually interested in kicking off a military conflict with North Korea. So you were saying that, yeah, it's kind of like um, you've a generation that kind of has kind of picked up again. Yeah, I'm the generation that got to foresaw it. Yeah. Um, my master's thesis, which, so I finished my master's in 2012. My thesis is a discourse and narrative analysis of drinking stories. I'm looking at Sorry. Ah, you crazed beast. That's my cat. So I'll start that sentence again. Um, oh, he's such a big kitty. But he's evil, I tell you, evil. Um, my master's thesis, which I got in 2012 from my master's, which I got in 2012 from Louisiana State University, my thesis was a discourse of narrative analysis of drinking stories, looking at how narrators manage the tension between credibility and tellability, how they established an identity, an identity as a competent drinker, and how they um, constructed causality and um, praise and blame, which is very different from what I'm doing now in many ways. And yet I would argue that the concern with narrative storytelling and language is a constant in my research then versus my research now. I mean, you have very much framed a lot of your researches part research part activism why do you why do you feel like you need to be an activist at the same time what what drives you in that sense what what is the grinding for all of that ego uh, you know everybody wants to, uh, I, don't know. I want to save the world nobody gets to save the world alone i don't know 
I really don't like the idea of dying terribly in a nuclear war. Like that's that's there too. And you know, I wouldn't have my prescription medications and like the cats and it would just be bad and unpleasant. But semi more seriously, um, you know, nuclear weapons and anthropogenic global warming are the two most immediate existential threats to humanity at a large scale. Uh, and of them, the one that is most immediate temporally is nuclear war, right? So there is no other event other than like, you know, maybe a meteorite, whatever. There's no other likely event in which like 200 million human beings are going to be dead within a week other than nuclear war. Also, the climate change stuff is depressing. And mm -hmm. I don't think that I could work on that. So, nukes it was. And it's fascinating. I'm just wondering, yeah, you've talked about it, like, I think you mentioned kind of towards the start that there's kind of a gendered part of your, of nuclear re uh, research or nuclear weapons. What were you meaning about that? I would argue that, and with, as others have, again, Carol Cohn's article, um, but many, you know, a large number of, of, a large amount of research has demonstrated that nuclear weapons have been drawn into um, our sociocultural frameworks of gender and violence and the relationships of gender and violence and performative masculinity and blah, 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 blah. So certainly, um, or rather, it has developed that like lick the bomb, I would argue, also fits within queer methodologies um, in which it is a disruption of the gendered framework in which nuclear weapons are a part and were certainly expressly articulated to during like civil defense and um, it's highly gendered, highly heteronormative. Uh, ideologies, etc., etc. Sorry, that was a little bit rambling. But certainly, in this case, I would also argue, right, gender as, and, um, you know, sexual subjectivities as two of the, along with race, class, and others, as two of the um, sort of key socially hierarchy, structurally, social hierarchy structuring factors are unsurprisingly of great relevance here, especially in a domain, war um, and violence in which we have so often excluded women and claimed as the domain of, you know, quote unquote men, real men. I mean, it's quite f weird if I think about all the people who were involved during the Cold War, it is predominantly men predominantly all white men. men yeah so so you yeah, so right so like in the event of a nuclear war i've i've posted a meme and boy did some people get cranky about this uh, uh we should talk about my memeing at some point yeah um, but i posted a meme of like you know mushroom cloud like thanks heteros and man some people were not amused but it's like look security regulations have been such that like it's on y'all if it happens but it seems like it seems that people would argue that my sexuality has nothing to do with my use of nuclear weapons but it's all within it this it's all within this cultural narrative of strength and masculinity is you know where this sits i mean what what would be the line that you draw i mean let's be honest here i'm pretty sure 
uh, a gay man or a lesbian could fire a nuclear warhead and cause death. It's th- that's not the point here. It's the fact that these straight men are actually the ones creating the environment in which these nuclear wars almost happen. Is that kind of closer to what it means? It's, you know, I'm sure there's plenty. It's somewhat tongue-in-cheek. Yeah. Yeah, it's somewhat tongue It's like the whole thing of like, uh, it's the whole thing of like, um, you know, uh, we need meat. We need more women KKK members. You know, it's <laughs> the idea that diversity and representation uh, is, is far superior it means that you're not able or capable of doing something evil it's stupid it's just identifying that within these kind of cultural uh, structures these outcomes are there these are an effect of the way in which things are structured yeah so yes um yes that there's a structuring effect going on and that furthermore so there's this uh, as an example furthermore that you know the circulation and um, reinscription of these practices help to help them to perdure and to further uh, reify the sorts of social relationships and subjectivities that they are encoding um, or carrying out. So like there's a 1956, 57 Sandia National Nuclear Weapons Laboratory advertisement um, about men and weapons and it's a semi-explicit justification of sandia's nuclear weapons work and the man is like napoleon era is what i think with the cannon right at crotch level and i wonder why did the cannon have to be at crotch level Mm -hmm. uh because it's so heavy and big and massive and it fires this big cannonball and yeah it is kind of weirdly sensual isn't it well i'm not so very weird this is also where where some of the queering come you know where the this is where the comes in um, that's that, that like nuclear casing so one of the things that I have quote unquote discovered for myself because I'm sure others have noticed it one of the things I have realized is museum visitors are really active agents like surprise this is one of the fundamental tenets of the field um, and one mm. of the more specific things I have found is that self-identified and to some extent uh, presumed right straight cis white guys um will pose with the casings in ways that are like like or sexual or so on right um but none of them are going to lick it right because that's a different thing than pretending like it's your dick so it's in some ways a sort of mockery of that practice also it's quite good. What, what do you think? Um, so you, you've mentioned you do a lot of memes, and to be honest, on I've seen quite a lot of your memes. They're, very, I mean, you mean very good. Thank you. They're moderately okay. <laughs> um, what is the? I I noticed the ones about chances of nuclear war come up a lot, but with pictures of cats. So Jupiter has this wonderfully dyspeptic like look to him, and Cloudy looks like he's either stoned or he's judging your your soul. Um, and Little Fluff is just so resplendent. Um, but you know, fluffy cats telling hard truths is kind of how I initially conceptualized that. And then, so right, cats saying terrible things like "Everybody you love in a nuclear war will die." Um, 
stuff like that. Uh, and it kind of expanded out into um, hashtag Atomic Animal Friends, which includes like, I think it's Annie the Aardvark, the Atomic Housekeeping Aardvark. Uh, yeah, that one sort of sprawled out. Right now I'm having fun with um, the sort of like, these sort of queered uh, homoerotic um, images that you can like, you know, add text to, right? So it's not Photoshop, but it's text. So like the distracted boyfriend, but the one where the guy is uh, next to a woman in a wedding dress and the guy is looking at a muscular man emerging from the ocean type of thing. Oh yeah, no, I I know that one. <laughs> the gay distracted gay distracted boyfriend or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> so memes are actually really fascinating. They force you to be really, really concise. Yeah. No, but that's all the you know you get these little and, nibbles of stuff. You know, uh, yes. there, there's also one that you did uh, recently about. Uh, well, I, I think it's an athlete uh, with an uh, deterrence oh, yeah. across his forehead, and somebody else kind of uh, <laughs> wringing their hands a little bit, <laughs> seeming a little bit. Anticipant, staring at their crotch. I mean, staring. It's yeah, a glance. Oh, wow. glancing. Whatever. At compellence and power. Yeah. Uh, because uh, so one of the things that's been driving me bonker balls is that supposed distinction. Because I mean, a deterrence is a form of compellence, but also like we're just calling everything deterrence and it's got this cachet to it and it's annoying and it's just driving me I, I become very frustrated and annoyed um, and I think that I in both policy and scholarly work or at least commentary mm -hmm. let's say that commentary and policy work and some scholarly work we calling deterrence things that classically would be considered compellence and power and in doing so we are uh, avoiding discussing the ways in which for example our desire and now or soon mm -hmm. i guess deployment of the lower yield submarine launch ballistic missile warhead the w76-2 mm -hmm. is less about deterrence and more about an effort to make our nuclear weapons function in a compelling fashion of upholding mm -hmm. american strength or military capabilities or so on rather than deterring nuclear war or deterring aggression that would result in nuclear war. In other words, we like to pretend that all nuclear weapons are about deterring aggression and nuclear war. Their nuclear weapons are about advancing their interests. Yeah. What? Yes, that's a, that's a pretty <laughs> classic one. What? But, I mean, we've kind of, uh, we've basically established that nuclear weapons as they currently stand are it's a pretty shit situation um i'm allowed to swear i'm in charge yeah. of this show and yeah and it's getting worse. and it is getting worse how can but it's still better than 1983 no, and i'm i'm guessing that's the closest the doomsday clock has been to midnight uh, i'm sure that's i'm not sure actually where the <laughs> just 1983 was kind of like the last um one of the last really, really tense, like, oh, this could go south sort of moments. And then since then, I would argue that generally we have been decreasing or remained uh, at the same levels of like risk. You know, it's really hard to quantify this. Um, 
you know, if someone asks, are we safer now than we were in the Cold War? It's like, probably, you know, I don't know. Safer from what? Safer from the president of the United <laughs> States having a bad day and ordering up a nuclear strike? Probably not. Are we safer from an accidental nuclear war developing out of a skirmish with the Soviets on the inter-German border? Yes, we're certainly safer mm -hmm. from that. Like, But, I know. mean, in general, um, do you think... I, okay, so what do you think we can do to basically rid the world of nuclear weapons? What What is it going to take? I mean, what can we do, if anything? I mean... I'm writing this down so I can have this. So what can we do to rid the world of nuclear weapons? Um, I would suggest a couple of things. First off, that nuclear abolition, a stable... Um, just like worthwhile nuclear abolition is going to require some fairly radical shifts in terms of how we structure things like international power, our sense of our relationships and obligations to each other as fellow human beings. I mean, I would also argue that we need to do this anyway, and we should do this anyway, and that this would also help with responding to anthropogenic global warming. I would also say outside of the more longer term utopian or what some would refer to as utopian idealistic stuff that needs to be done, I would also argue that there are shorter term steps that would both reduce the likelihood of nuclear war while also further moving us toward those things necessary to do to have a more stable, just you know, fully, full disarmament. Um, so in the shorter term, continuing to decrease. So one of the problems is that, I would argue, since the end of the Cold War, we've focused a lot on decreasing numbers of weapons and less on like what those weapons allow us to do. So we've continued to cut numbers as long as they it hasn't also really reduced like our ability to do certain things capabilities wise. What I'm suggesting is that in the longer term, we have to begin moving nuclear weapons out of certain realms. Like you, there are just certain things you shouldn't be using nuclear weapons for, and we should stop using them for that, right? So one thing would be moving toward a no first use and a sole use declaration. Um, so we would not use, we declare that we would not use nuclear weapons first. And so that nuclear weapons exist only to deter nuclear attack or, you know, existential attack, whatever. And then you would follow that up with whatever the technical steps in terms of like nuclear force posture, dumping ICBMs, for instance, would be one move, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Does that make sense? So I kind of split those two off because on the one hand, for me, the goal is absolutely, hey, I want world, right? Like I'm in a, a pageant. It, what, you know, what is your life goal? World peace through nuclear disarmament. But I'm also kind of serious about it. Uh, and that's really idealistic, utopian, and not within the realm of possibility in some people's belief systems. And so I also would stress that there are these shorter things that we can do, shorter term things, smaller short things that we should do mm -hmm. also. Um, as individuals, I would also note that we tend to conceptualize of having of ourselves as being very powerless in terms of nuclear weapons decision making. And I would argue that the historical record demonstrates that both public opinion and mass public activism mm -hmm. on this issue 
has consistently um, and significantly restrained or shaped decisions made by like the United States in terms of how it handled it and certainly the European states in terms of like what weapons they procured, how they handled um, their nuclear weapons, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So, you know, call your Congress critter, um, show up to your local local um, anti-nuclear weapon uh, or peace group sort of thing, like active, uh, you know, organize, write letters. I mean, sort of the standard US citizenship stuff also. And what's what can average people do? And break some windows, yes. actually. Right? <laughs> uh, with, a, with a blast. Break windows with, with, a, with a blast. No, 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 we don't, no. Not nuclear disarmament through use, but uh-huh. um, right at the end of the day, I mean, certain fundamental radical changes required. And uh, particularly in the current moment, right, you have to ask to what extent more traditional and mainstream methods of political representation have utterly failed us i think i think it's pretty obvious that you know the whole argument of i mean this is the thing in the uk uh we have trident which is the submarine based uh nuclear weapons system which we leased them to you uh, thanks thanks um you're welcome you take them back (laughs) the warhead design is ours too basically so i mean the thing is the, the problem with trident is it's basically kept in scotland and uh, Scotland's not a big fan of it. Parsley. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, this is a classic. This is a classic practice, by the way. Nuclear colonialism um, at all scales, like in, intra-state, like New Mexico and uranium mining, um, all the way up to like, hey, let's stick our nuclear submarine base in Scotland or let's mine our uranium in Africa. Thank you, France. Let's test nuclear weapons uh, in the Marshall Islands, the United States, or in Kazakhstan, the Soviet Union, etc. Like this is a, a, oh yeah, nuclear colonialism is one of those things. So basically, you know, fine, we can have nuclear weapons, but only when it's as far away from us as possible. It's, I mean, who wants the just like with right environmental racism, the the elite, the folk. Who may, right? They're not going to pay the costs associated with them. Fuck that. No, 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 of course not. But this is the, this is the thing. It's, I'll be yeah. fine. I, I mean, I think it's quite fascinating in real terms because getting rid of these nuclear things, a lot of people would say, well, no, we can't get rid of it because then we lose our deterrence. And obviously, as you said before, yes. deterrence is actually quite coercive there is a kind of coercion and it's combined with a whole lot of stuff and it's yeah it's not a simple set of uh you know if i've got my guns pointed at you you've got your guns pointed at me the uk was very explicit about seeking nuclear weapons or a major a significant reason about for seeking nuclear weapons as being related to status prestige in the international order like i mean it's ridiculous i mean what is the the, is it the truth that is it true that the UN Security Council you have to be a nuclear power to sit no. on it or something like that? I mean, the UK no, was a UN Security and all all of the states were UN were permanent UN members except um, all of the states that are permanent veto members were not nuclear possessors at the time of the UN foundation except for the United States because the Soviet Union didn't test until forty nine and then the UK in fifty two and France in like sixty whatever and China sixty four. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. China did it quite early. Like I, I'm really quite impressed. 
I I was always under the impression that yeah we were too we were surprised yeah. the um, intelligence agencies for the US had estimated it would take them longer and they were able to get their uranium enrichment um, up to speed and running fast enough faster yeah. than we expected I mean fundamentally like any semi-industrialized mm -hmm. state can do it if they have enough money time and you know yeah. technical personnel but i mean like, the thing is you, you you don't need do we really need nuclear weapons in this day and age you know what i mean is is there is there, apart from i've obviously you're a nuclear abolitionist and nuclear weapons abolitionist but um what i mean is is there any truth to what the uk kind of argues of prestige and status with nuclear weapons. I would say they absolutely come with prestige and status. I would also argue that A, by not talking about that explicitly, we kind of hush it up and cover it up. And this leads to distorted decision-making around the topic, um, or at least denies, mm -hmm. you know, an informed citizen, a citizenry at least, yeah. the ability to discuss explicitly like what we're talking about when we're talking about having nuclear weapons. Um, you know, B, I would offer that like the uh, references to, well, if I don't have nuclear weapons, then I could be attacked by, you know, Russia, etc. Like the system in which this is possible is also related to the continued like uses we're putting nuclear weapons to and our continued retention to them. And that, so to an extent, like just talking about dumping nuclear weapons is in my mind not enough and in fact i think actually without other steps would not be a stable way to go because it's part of a larger they are nuclear weapons are part of a larger problematic system rather than like some um thing you can just get rid of and then like all our problems go with them i want to finally just wrap up on a quite a positive note and um plutonium and the colors of plutonium. So I know back oh, yes, there are many of in them. March, earlier in March, you had some, uh, you had some images of the pretty colors of plutonium. Can you tell us a little bit more about those? This is uh, an old project. Um, plutonium's weird, and the people who work with it will tell you straight yeah. up, it's weird. It's fascinating. Um, and weird and it had does a lot of stuff mm -hmm. uh plutonium like pure plutonium um you know has like six phase states and da, 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 da. Mm -hmm. but so it has a lot of reactions and so it has a lot of forms so like in looking at uh doe D department of energy um reports on like its plutonium production activities they had this neat flow chart describing the production of plutonium metal, which is weapons usable, from um, uranium, you know, mined, and mm -hmm. then you send it to the reactor and blah, 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 blah. In any case, it had a descri description of the various plutonium compounds um, and their kind of like nicknames, and one of them was Pink Cake. And this launched me on like this three-year quest to get pictures of pink cake, PU plutonium tetrafluoride, because there just aren't any open, or there weren't any open source until I put them out there. Um, there was like one really, really, really crappy one. <clears throat> and in addition, there's like plutonium trifluoride, which is this really great purple. Plutonium um, dioxide is kind of boring. Yeah, uh -huh. it's a really fascinating um, substance, and it's just kind of a weird 
thing that I had to go through this three-year process dealing with government information management practices to get pictures of a plutonium, like a chemical compound that is in no way classified in its existence or appearance, or as far as I know, in its other material properties. As, uh, as, so the pink cake comes from the name of yellow cake, which is usually a uranium. It's a coloration. It's kind of salmon colored. Yeah, usually it's uranium cake. So like plutonium dioxide, I want to say is green salt and um, there are others. And as you point out for uranium, there's your uh, yellow cake, which is uh, milled and processed, but not enriched. Awesome. Well, where can we find you if we want to have uh, find you online? Twitter is easiest at nuclearanthro.com. Uh, you can also, if you go to deusexatomica.org I think that that will get you to to me somehow. Right. I'll put it in the show notes as well. Yeah, uh, thank you very much for talking to us uh, and uh, all the best with uh, future research and you know. Thank you for having me. Keep licking bombs. Absolutely. Uh, now I can yell at the cats with gay abandon. been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.